Kevin. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, is it too wow. early for that? Is wow. it too? Did were, I, I fucking hate. Were you planning I've that this entire been time? Planning that for at least two days. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. You said, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I Honestly, did. Though, gr- first of all, congr- congratulations. That was excellent. Um, and number two, I love that song. So yeah. Well, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good song. Though I think maybe like my only my second favorite John Hughes musical number. Oh, really? Um, I know. We're going to. Who, sh- who shall prevail? Yeah, we'll we're going to we'll find see. out later, I think. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast where you take a subject such as an actor, a director, or a mini genre, and we give you a full, full history, like a big school exam. And then we grade it. We grade an A or we grade an F. We are full. We are just overflowing, honey. This is the Golden Corral. You're going to the buffet and just getting all you can eat, hon. sneeze guards everywhere. Just all all the most sneeze guards, please. And please stay six foot away. Do you think Golden Corral will survive this? No. I'm surprised Golden Corral survived the yachts, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> she's been through things. Yeah. Um, she's seen it all. Yeah, yeah. And so have I. Um, <laughs> welcome, everyone. We're here. We're queer. Last time we we talked to each other, Gavin, we talked about the lovely Miss Olivia de Havilland. It's very true. Um, I love doing those episodes because... I love everyone's reaction online, just being like, oh my God, I like everyone just feels a little bit fancy for a little bit, you know, <laughs> to, to, um, you know, dip into the waters of cinema, um, classique. We never, we never get a message that anybody's like, I had to adjust the color on my TV. I don't understand. Why no, was it in black? No, and- we never did. No, <laughs> no. Thanks. Thankfully. Um, but, uh, that was a great episode. I thought, I hated it. No, I, I I loved it. It was it was great, and and I do love doing those classic episodes, and we should definitely do more of them. And I hope our audience enjoys them. Obviously, yeah, they're like oh, they're harder. I would say for us for sure, yeah. just because I mean harder and easier. I guess sometimes there's like so much information. Yeah. Um. Or you know the movies are harder to find. But I had to activate uh, all four interns that I have to do mm, the research. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I must say they're very happy not to be paid. Right. Yeah. I bet you Muffy is just like really excited oh to God. be activated. Absolutely. Finally. I'm like, I'm um, going li- <laughs> to I'm going to let you out of your cage. <laughs> I'm going to read some Olivia oh to have books. Um, we asked you guys to go online and vote for your favorite um, Olivia to have movie. I really was hoping that I would finally like break this losing streak. And you, yet I was. You got close to getting second. You really did. I really did. And yet somehow third um in last place was to each his own with nine percent then my pick the snake pit with 14 percent somehow gone with the wind came in in second place with 17 percent guys and first of all i don't believe that that many of you have seen gone with the wind the entire way through okay i just don't believe they've been watching it on the four-part installments that they've been doing as the gone with the wind miniseries on hbo max It was like Gone with the Wind, it's but like Zach's, it's layaway plan. Yeah, it's Zack Snyder's Gone with the Wind. Mm, it's his yes. cut. Yes, okay. Um, He'd probably be really <laughs> into that, so I don't want to put that energy out in the world. <laughs> Please, no. And then your pick, Gavin, again, the heiress with a, like, it trounced. 60% of people um, chose the heiress, which, you know, it's a good movie. We live, we stand, but... Can I can I can I get something, please? And, can I win? And I will say, I love the Snake Pit. The Snake Pit is so good, and and such a quality performance from her that I don't know. I 
I, I too was shocked, honestly. I, I like Melanie in Gone with the Wind, but man, oh man, she is so good in the snake pit. Yeah, Miss Melly. Oh, may she rest in peace. Um, you know, we did have some other um, picks. Um, Anne said she loves Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which was one of her later movies, yes. right? And then we also got um, a response for Strawberry Blonde, which we thought was very fun. Oh, absolutely. And just like a little sassy boots. Um, so thank you guys for voting for um, your favorite Olivia movie. Um, we will always cherish her movies. I cannot believe that I watched the entirety of Gone with the Wind. Um, but if it, I'm going to do it for anyone, it's for you, Gavin. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's over. That's done with. And we can um, uh, get into some other business that we have to take care of. Right, Gavin? Absolutely. Before we move into this week's subject, which we will be doing in just a moment, we have a couple new reviews and we want to read them to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them actually comes from overseas and it's funny because this is something I just learned. iTunes does not alert us to the overseas reviews because we're in the U.S. and luck because they built the wall. They did build the wall. <laughs> they built. They built. They built. They built it. For some reason, some of the reviews are geo blocked, but I have my ways of finding them. And we got a new She's one. She's a sneaky sneak. Oh yeah, we got a new one from Germany, and I'm gonna let Louis read it. Uh, so the title is "Can't Stop Listening." Uh, I can only guess how much time and work Gavin and Louie put into each of the entertaining and insightful episodes, but it must be insane, and I'm very thankful for it. I love taking time out of my day to listen to their witty banter and nuanced opinions. That's from Benita013, um, out in Germany. Thank you, Alemania. We um, appreciate you guys listening. And yeah, it's <laughs> Gavin was just telling me how we chose the subject for this episode. It was a little lighter than last time, just because... Uh, we both still work uh, day jobs <laughs> and, um, you know, pay bills and um, allegedly have um, personal lives. Yeah, I don't know um, what that is. No one can prove that. No. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's it is a, a labor of love and we do love doing it. So thank you for sending this message. Um, but we have another um, review as well, right? Gavin? We do. And this one comes all the way from the United States of America, where we live. Uh, title is Positive Metascore. And it says the mixed reviews does something different than most film podcasts I've listened to while others focus on films, directors or genres specifically the mixed reviews tackles actors, actresses, careers in depth. They also throw in other movie focused topics and older episodes for a little bit of variety, i.e. 90s superhero movies. It's informative without being overly critical or self serious movie watchers need to add this show to their podcast rotation. And that's from derelict 88. Oh my god okay first of all thank you so much for specifically shouting out our superheroes movies from the 90s that was a super niche episode we had a really great guest on who was that Kevin? john hogan um john hogan who was super like maybe the most prepared um <laughs> guest we've had like he was very cool very funny but also super professional and um i yeah i remember we sat at your kitchen table doing that we did and it was like an afternoon he came over ugh, in the before times i know when uh, we could see people in person what's that like <laughs> yeah i and think also we the, all hugged oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like that was uh, i guess it kind of like talking about us doing these older episodes with these uh, classic film stars and then the, the 90s superheroes things it's like very niche but also like very rich um uh, uh canon of movies so yeah we have a lot of fun doing those uh, absolutely I, sometimes I, I i love looking at our catalog and being like you know what we kind of are that girl we <laughs> you know we like mixing it up the reviews they are mixed they absolutely are thank you everybody for writing in and giving us five star reviews uh if you can please go to apple Podcasts, leave us a nice five star and a review 
and we'll read it on the show. We love getting them. It helps other people find us. And yeah, it's it's just really nice. It's nice to hear that people appreciate what we're doing. I know. People listen to us? What's that like, <laughs> father? Uh, <laughs> um, speaking of daddy issues, <laughs> there's the transition. There it is. There she is. Yeah, speaking of daddy issues, Gavin, why don't you tell our folks what we're um, talking about today? We are doing the life and career of possibly the most influential teenage film writer ever, John Hughes. Well, he wasn't a teenage film writer. No, but he t- wasn't a teenager, <laughs> but he wrote about teenagers. Yes, yes. <laughs> but yes, we're talking about John Hughes, um, who like... Honestly, oh, I wish I had, you know, like a soundboard where I can just do like, chika-chika. yeah, um, just like all the way through this. Um, but yeah, John Hughes, who I think just like saying his name, like triggers a primal reaction in a lot of people just because he has such a singular style aesthetic. People like know, um, even if you don't know, it's like you're watching a movie and you're like, this movie feels like comfort. It feels like middle America. Right. It's And it's like. This movie like, feels I had very no, white. It feels very white. <laughs> and I remember th- like when I was doing research, I was like, excuse me, he wrote the Beethoven movies? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of like maybe not as successful kid family movies that you as a child watched. Like I remember watching Dennis the Menace all the time and I didn't rewatch it for this, but I was like, yeah, that makes sense that he did that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Flubber, same. I had that VHS, honey. Baby's Day um, Out. Huge yeah. Baby's Day Out fan, were you? Yes, I was. I was shocked to hear people didn't like it. I was like, <laughs> um, that baby was going on an adventure, honey. Um, but yeah, we, we we chose John Hughes. I brought him up maybe like two episodes ago in like conversation about who we were going to talk about. I think I had first brought up John Candy. And then still could um, come, still could come, still could come. Um, and then we saw she's having a baby in our Kevin Bacon um, episode, and so he's kind of well, he's been on the periphery. And then we were kind of stuck, and you were like, "Why don't we do that John Hughes episode that you suggested?" Yeah. And I was like, "Oh yeah," and, and I feel like it came at sort of a perfect time. I mean, we're right at the cusp of fall. The leaves are changing. The kids are going back to school virtually, I hope. Please, mm-hmm, please don't mm-hmm. make this pandemic last longer than it is. And I I think there is that sense that comes along with John Hughes, though, funny enough, he only made like five teenage films. Yeah. But but those all five seem to be <laughs> canon, or at least yeah. four. And and it's such an interesting thing to I I do. I equate him with like sweaters and Mm -hmm. hats and and this very like 80s like you said midwestern feel this home style i came from a small town upstate you know it it all had that feel well it feels like i mean i i was born and raised on a border town in texas and watching his movies like home alone um and and we're 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 using like kind of this universal his movies to kind of cover like things he wrote and directed. He did not direct Flubber or you right. know a bunch of these movies I mentioned, but he wrote a lot of them, produced a lot of them, directed I think eight of them. Um, but all I have to say, I'm using his movies very loosely. Um, but like Home Alone, Breakfast Club, um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like all that stuff, it felt like and this is weird, like 
in my head, I was like, oh, this is what real America looks like. This is what like, you know, fancy rich people do. And um, and maybe that's why I had such a visceral reaction when I, we were doing Catherine O'Hara and I was rewatching Home Alone. And I was like <laughs> feeling very resentful. I was like, how dare Home Alone 2 make me feel like, uh, you know, corporate America is the real America. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think like high school in my brain always feels super heightened during the fall semester season whatever um just because i don't know like you're cozy and cold and studying and you know it's like the peak of football season also uh and yeah uh he's i think we're going to talk a lot about uh maybe some romanticism nostalgia um whether that like has held up or not i think there are definitely a lot of missteps and fuck-ups and Things that I think that are not good about John Hughes and his yeah. movies, um, which sucks to say, because it's almost like, you know, the 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 curtain has been pulled back, like yeah. the, the rewatching and being like, oh, that is racist as fuck. And I cannot believe that, uh, you know, he, a lot of like gay F words in the movies. Like, yeah, uh, like yeah there's there's a lot of. Yeah, there's a lot of casual racism. There's a lot of casual homophobia. <clears throat> there's more than its fair share of casual sexism, which is funny because I think the thing that John Hughes is most good at, surprisingly, is writing central female characters. But there is a lack of awareness of mm -hmm. they come they come from a very male place right and it's almost as if like john hughes is coming from a lot of his movies especially those teen movies are all about like being an outsider being the outcast and feeling that you could be that way no matter who you are um but like <laughs> what a privilege to think that you're like you know all these cis white people have problems because their parents are mean or whatever right. and like not even considering what maybe a queer person would be going through or a black or brown person would be going through um and it's and so it's kind of like laughable like now watching these movies it's like oh my god like i do know being a teen sucks and like you feel everything but this guy's trying to tell me that like you know oh no i'm rich my parents well like it's it's it, very that and it kind of reminds me and i i've brought this up before on other occasions but if you go back to our queer cinema episode there's a great quote from harvey firestein from the celluloid closet about his writing you know people coming and telling him that his writing feels universal and he's like no it's not universal it's it's queer and you have to do the translation Work. like yep. i've had to do with them and I've read things from queer people, from black people saying how much they've been able to sort of imprint themselves on these movies are, are fine. The Absolutely. characters that would be them, but also like that's them having to do the translation Absolutely. and it's not and, there. And what's wild is like, you know, cause he has, there, there was um, something I read. Um, I think it was the, I, I posted a couple articles on our Facebook page Um one is behind a paywall from New York Times, but if you have a time subscription, you should read it. It's from their magazine back in 91. And they ask him about like the, all of his central characters. And I would argue all of them are white, um, except for maybe like Long Duck Dong. And that's fucking racist. Right. Um, and he says something to the effect of like the, the Lena Dunham response of like, I wouldn't dare to think that I knew the black experience. And I'm like, 
this man doesn't think that like black and brown kids have the same experiences as like being right. nerds at school. Like what the fuck? Um, and so, and, and what's even wilder is he even admits and says that is a spot that I need to work on and hopefully I'm getting better at it. La 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 la. Unfortunately, or I don't know what the fuck this was towards the end of his career and he yeah. retired or whatever. So, and, and we're going to get to all of that uh, before we do. Why don't we move into the rewind? John Wilden Hughes Jr. He is the second John Hughes. And I, there is a third. There he is. Had a son, John Hughes III. Uh, he was born February 18th, 1950, and he died August 6th, 2009. Um, he was 59. Um, and he had a heart attack in New York. Super sad. Uh, but he was uh, born in Michigan, actually. He has... Three sisters. He, I believe, is the second eldest child. Um, they grew up in Gross Point, Michigan. Um, his mom was like just a homemaker. She volunteered, and her his dad, uh, John Hughes Senior, was uh, a salesman. They moved to the suburbs of Chicago when he was like thirteen, and that's kind of where he, um, you know. The roots, the beginnings, the seeds <laughs> of teen angst and such started taking root. I grew up in Gross Point, Michigan, which is I mean, a lot of automobile money. And my father didn't own the automobile company, he worked for the automobile company. We lived on the fringe. And I had all these people, I mean, I, I knew kids that, that would, you know, third grade would say, when I'm 18, I'm getting $22 million. You know, and I was just, it, it always bothered me. Not that they were getting it, it wasn't. But um, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I, I always had a problem with, with that. He literally meets his future wife in high school. Like, totally, like his life. It, totally casual. Totally. Yeah. Like his life is a fucking movie. His future wife, Nancy, who was a cheerleader and be deep. Um, and this is funny because I think when we get later into his future, everyone's like, oh my God, John must have been like an outsider outcast. He's writing what he knows. And it's like, no, bitch, he married the children of my high school. He was fine. <laughs> he found movies as an escape. He was a very creative kid. Um, and his parents, um, especially his dad, criticized him a lot. And we'll see this yeah. running throughout a lot of his movies about how you know, art isn't work and you can't make a living off of art and you have to um, always think about, um, you know, the actual plan for life. How are you going to support yourself and your family? Um, yeah, outside of a few instances, when it comes to his films in which there are teens, adults are monsters. Yeah, <laughs> Genuine worst. monsters. I Dream mean, crushers. I, I think 16 Candles stands out. And honestly, the only reason it stands out is because... Paul Dooley, who was cast as the father, turned down the role because there wasn't enough meat for the character. And he wrote that great scene when he realizes he's missed his daughter's birthday. And then Car Carolyn Glynn, who played the mother, confronted him on set about the fact that she never realizes that she forgot her daughter's birthday. So he yep. had to write that scene for her. So I feel like the only time his, his parents get a redeeming value is under duress. Right. So he, you know, is, is feeling, you know, uh, pressure and criticism from his parents about what he wanted to do in his life. Um, he was a huge music nerd, loved the Beatles. Um, and he also was just like a, a, a carnivore of films. Like he was just like in taking all this stuff. 
he decides to go to art school, but at the University of Arizona, um, which was not a good fit for him. He quickly drops out. Um, oh, also, he literally is already married. He is now married. He's a <laughs> yeah. married teenager. Um, and he moves back to Chicago and he begins selling jokes to like comedians. He's literally just cold pitching, writing jokes, putting them in an envelope and mailing them out. He's sending them out to people like Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, Johnny Carson. And he's occasionally getting some traction, but these jokes are being paid for for like five dollars. $10 a joke. Right. There's, it's not going to pay the bills. And so he get ends up um, getting an ad, uh, job in Chicago. And, you know, it's like, he's kind of being creative by creating these advertisements for these companies, but it's like, he's making commercials for like corn pops and like shaving cream. And I think though he does get one really famous one, which is the, the credit card, like, Shave oh, the so edge. Cl- yeah, the edge of the yes. credit card shaving so close to the skin. His biggest um, work uh, or account was for Virginia Slims. Um, his bosses at um, the ad agency loved him. You know, he was very creative. He was making these commercials that were big successes. But so the Virginia Slims account, though, allowed him to travel to New York a lot, which I didn't. I was reading up on him after I watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and I was like, what the fuck is this guy doing flying from New York to Chicago for this stupid job? And I was like, oh, that was his life. That cool. was his life. Exactly. Um, right when you know. Sorry, kidding. <laughs> basically. Um, but so he, when he was in New York, though, he would get a little cozy with the editors of the National Lampoon magazine. I was just working to be accepted as a writer, which I you know, never thought. And everybody in my family's always been like a business, like a generic businessman, you know, like you wear one of those white suits with a brown stripe down it that says businessman in block letters, you know. So anything, cre- I mean, uh, creative was, you could be an advertising executive. That was acceptable because you wore a tie and you went to a job and you worked for a company and you sold products, but you were able to think up stuff and be creative. So it was it took me a long time to accept the fact that I was actually earning a living as a writer. Now, Gavin, I don't know a lot about National Lampoon. I obviously know that it was a magazine. I know it made movies. But, like, how, do you are you familiar with, like, how were they, like, lit, super lit? Like, was it, like, the place to be at the time? It was considered, like, a really hip thing to, to be involved with. I mean, National Lampoon was a very, very funny magazine, and it had a lot of top writers working at it at the time. Um, but it was also, like, kind of very loosey-goosey, do right. you know do your own thing there were drugs it's it's a lot like um if you if you've ever read that book about snl's early histories and the, oh, the writers gotcha. are on drugs it's 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 that sort of situation um and i think also just in general this was sort of his dream he wanted to be funny you want to be recognized for that so when i moved to the lampoon um it was something that i, I turned 29 i was about to turn 29 and i realized that if I didn't move soon, I'd be so deeply entrenched in, you know, corporate business life and you know, country club memberships and all that sort of stuff that I'd never. It'd be very difficult to leave. As it was, it was kind of uh, financially uh, irresponsible. I had a, a three-year-old son and a pregnant wife and a new house, and you know, <laughs> I went off to be uh, an editor for uh, like a salary that was somewhat less than my Christmas bonus. You know. But uh, we had a big snowstorm in Chicago, and I got to stay home for 
about 10 days and just write. And it was, it was so much fun doing that. I said, I can't go back and you know, write uh, commercials anymore. So I, uh, I made the jump. You know, I, knew, I, I gave myself three years, and I figured that, um, you know, that I could go back in failure and defeat. But if I didn't try it, uh, then, you know, I mean, I, I dreaded like being 75 in a nursing home somewhere saying, you know, I should have. And then I went to the lampoon and wrote incredibly horrible humor stuff. Uh, quite, a, quite a change from writing Kellogg's commercials to some of the things I did at the lampoon. Um, but it was a liberating experience. The funny thing is, is I hit this point in his history during the research process and was like, cool, 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 whatever. Um, you know, this leads to movies. I didn't investigate any further, but Molly Ringwald did. And mm. after he passed away uh, a couple years ago, she wrote a, an article for The New Yorker, um, sort of revisiting his films, um, especially in the Me Too era. And I got to say, a lot of these, a lot of these stories he wrote, I mean, some of his, some of his great work comes from the Mr. Mom comes from an article he wrote for that uh, vacation comes from vacation 58, which is a story he wrote for that. But he, he also wrote um, these, uh, these stories about teenagers, one called my penis and one called my vagina uh, my penis is about a girl who wakes up with a penis, and uh, as Molly Ringwald describes it, she then forces her boyfriend to blow her, and and the my vagina is about a boy who wakes up with a vagina and he gets gang raped by his friends and ends up having to Jesus spend his, yeah, exactly, <laughs> ends up having to spend like the money that he saved for ski poles on an abortion. I I <sighs> I. I mean, I know the 70s was like kind of a wild and crazy time for comedy, but they sound tasteless. And I'm, well, ki I'm kind of happy that like people take into consideration other people's. I, I know what people are like, oh, well, there's no boundaries when it comes to comedy. Uh, if you get offended, that's on you. And it's like, no, <laughs> the, the, there is an element of, of, of taste and class and comedy doesn't work if it's constantly punching down. It's almost absolutely yes. It's almost like I'm not even like offended. I'm just like disappointed. Right. Like, like, or it's kind I, of like I too uh, am in mom mode. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah, correct. It's almost like oh well, no wonder you know there's nary a gay to be found in his films. Um, like it's and I keep thinking about that. Like you know, he writes about like these. Uh, we'll get to this. But he writes about being an outsider, but it's like he is a white man from like right. a pretty like and he said, you know, his family was pretty like upper middle class. You know, there's four kids. The mom doesn't work. It's like they were fine. Right. Um, and yet. The turmoil he is getting is like, you know, that he was feeling criticized by his parents, even though like in the end he did go to art school. Right. It's not anyone's fault that he dropped out like. I don't know why the f I I couldn't find anywhere why he chose University of Arizona and and there's also this element of class struggle in a lot of his yes. works. Uh, we're gonna probably get further into this in a moment, but uh, his editor at uh, National Lampoon was P.J. O'Rourke, who is uh, conservative, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he has said as you know well, what I love, Gavin. 
just conservative comedians. I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> so funny. La 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 la. Um, and uh, you know, then you also get you know his friend Ben Stein, who ends up in a lot of his movies, who was a speechwriter for Nixon. Both of them have confirmed on a couple different occasions that he was a conservative Republican and he just yes. didn't like to talk about it in interviews. And I think it's hard to parse when you when you look at the surface level of his work and you're like, a lot of his films are about teenage rebellion, you know, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that doesn't really go alongside with the idea of, you know, conservative right. politics. But uh, I think all the things we're saying kind of leads you to believe that there, there's another way of looking at this <laughs> that's beyond yeah, the surface level. Correct. Um, so he's working um, at first. He's just like on the side doing um, lampoon stuff. And then it, he even I think I read somewhere that he literally would go to work at the ad agency and he would leave coffee on his desk and then go to fucking New York for the day. And people just thought he was like in the restroom or whatever and then come back at the end of the day. Like, that's some fucking, like, Ferris Bueller <laughs> antics shit. He's now on staff at the the magazine. And after the success of Animal House, um, all of a sudden, Hollywood is knock, knock, a knockin. Um, and just trying to find the next Animal House. Um, I think, like, Mr. Mom comes out of something different. He writes the script, you know, and then he's kind right. of Right, off, and, and, that, you and know? that's in the moment when he realizes, like, oh, I don't like... Yeah. my shit being like fucked with with other by other people and so he, you know he and we talked about that during our michael keaton episode feel free to listen to our michael keaton episode with great guest christy puchko christy puchko a oh, lovely guest um he also but then also not like he didn't even know this but essentially paramount is like oh vacation 58 like they picked that up and um decide to make that into a movie and after some flops in the national lampoon wheelhouse vacation in- including bl- bl- his first scripted one, which is National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Yes. I watched this. Nary a joke lands. Vacation 58. I I thought I had seen this movie, but surprise, I the one that I was thinking of was um, uh, Vegas Vacation was what I was thinking of. <laughs> Sorry. So. I don't that's... mean to laugh. But... <laughs> and yet, you know what? I remember, same thing. Like, a lot of these movies, I just remember watching as kids and being like, oh my God, this is the best. And like, I thought Vegas Vacation was like so funny and like, I don't know. But anyway. so Vegas Vacation Va- is one of the two that he didn't have anything to do with. Cause, wow. Because European Vacation and Vegas Vacation are the two that, because he, he wrote Christmas Vacation. Because that's also based off another real experience. But So Vacation, starring Chevy Chase. Um, and a tiny little, um, I always get his fucking name on Anthony Michael, Michael Hall, Anthony Michael. I always want to call him Michael C. Hall, but I know no, that's not right. Those that's are Dexter. Th- yeah, I was going to say those are different serial killers. <laughs> Kidding, Anthony we know Hall. you're not a serial killer. Anthony Michael Hall, please stop <laughs> calling me. <laughs> knock, 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 knock. Um, the tiniest little Anthony Michael Hall. Um, also the tiniest little Jane Krakowski. Um, uh, yeah. but that movie is very racist um uh i don't know i'm do, nodding along <laughs> do, do you i i did i enjoy the film no um but you know it is a big hit it's a huge hit people love it i mean i so here's the thing that i think about for when i was when i, I quickly realized when i was re-watching some of these movies or watching some for the first time i was like his movies are like fables and they should be like 
or fairy tales. They should be treated as such. There is going to be like unrealistic nonsense that goes on. So you have to just like let that go. But that's part of the like fun and whimsy of it all. But like, it's hard to make whimsy out of like, oh no, we took the wrong street and now we're in like downtown St. Louis and all these black people are scary. Like that's not whimsy. That's just ignorance and stupidity. <laughs> and and also like when you think about like through a conservative lens, like of course that's what they're like, you know, fucking pumping through. Like that's Trump rhetoric, you know, like the streets are burning. The, like bleh. Right. Um, and, and it's funny because I, once again, it, it, I guess this is the time to bring it up. Uh, a lot, a lot of his stuff is, is based on nostalgia, right? A lot of his, the, a lot of the, the things that he's talking about in his movies, a lot of the things, and we're going to be talking about more of his movies. And I know we're right on the cusp of it. And I know some of you are just here to hear about the teen movies and we're going to get there. But I think, you know, in a way, nostalgia's prison and, and I, You're and not I, wrong, bitch. And I think that he's his movies, though contemporary for the time in which they came out, hip because he was an avid music lover, and mm-hmm. but the the politics and as you mentioned, the like fairy taleistic idealist plots feel like they're ripped from another time period. Yeah, and and I think that it's. His, it's strange because our nostalgia for his movies and the time in which his movies exist come from his nostalgia for a time in which he grew up and he existed. And it's this weird perpetual cycle. And I don't know, because it's you, you, it always happens in time in general. You look at the 70s, there's a huge like resurgence of the 1950s and the 70s. You look at the 90s, there's a huge resurgence of the 60s and the 90s. And, and I think that it's this almost never ending cycle when you have these 30 year old or mid 30 year old white men dictating the stories to you. The stories right. you're going to get are from their perspective, even if it's not as clear as being like my main character is a 30 year old white man. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll get to like the, a lot of the things that his characters do. It's like, would a black person be able to get away with that? Right. Probably not. Anyway, so he notoriously is a super fast writer, yeah. would write his scripts like, in days, so, you know, he would sometimes be working on a script and then like stop to take a break and then literally finish another script and like pumping them out. I was used to magazine writing, which was nonstop, constant deadline. So I, when I started writing scripts, I applied those same things, the same sort of uh, deadlines and pressure writing that I did in the magazine business and in the advertising business before that. And I, you know, I just started grinding these scripts out and uh, they, you know, one after the other, they're getting made. After uh, Mr. Mom, he got a three film deal with Universal Pictures. And so he was writing, 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 and he writes um, The Breakfast Club first. It's first called Detention. And he is um, thinking like, 
he and and because he is also so protective and wants all this control, he um, is trying to finance these films um, independently from the studios. When they say, "Okay, I, what I'd like here is right after here, move this scene over here and put this in, and then add this guy," and um, I mean, me personally, I lose. Uh, you know, I'm sort of like a uh, like a bird, you know, and the script is 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 is, is the is the baby, and if somebody touches it too much, you know, you have to kick it out of the nest, you know, because it gets, it gets other people's imprint on it, and I can't quite, I don't see it the same anymore. So, working um, with spec scripts, I don't have to do that. I can just say, here it is, and I think it's fair. I think it's, you know, it's good, it's regular business, you know, I mean, uh, here's the script, you know, you like it, you're not, and this is the way it's going to be. And so he's thinking, like, how can I write something on the cheap or make a movie on the cheap? And he thinks, well, something in one room, five actors, get it done. Um, and so that's where Breakfast Club comes from. Um, but while li- literally, like I said, he's he's writing that and, you know, it's going through the Hollywood bullshit. He writes 16 Candles. Yeah. Uh, and 16 Candles ends up being made first. Um, and he... And I guess this is also the time we should bring up his first muse, Miss Molly Ringwald, comes into the picture. Yeah, the 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 legend is that while casting for detention, he sees her and he he like puts her picture up on mm-hmm. his corkboard above where he writes, and he writes sixteen candles for her. And when Universal's like, "We like this script better. Let's do this first, He's like, "Cool, we're casting her. Sixteen candles is um you know, about this girl whose family has forgotten it's her birthday and her sister's going to get married the next day. Um, It's also, you know, um, again, he, he, he liked um, Anthony Michael Hall so much in vacation. Um, He just wants to cast him as the geek who is obsessed, like kind of just like really obnoxious. He's a freshman character who's, trying to i don't know get off yeah um, <laughs> he's just a walking hard on 16 candle i mean and, and it's it's huge people you know flip for it it's uh and jake ryan he literally cast this a male model yeah who was like able and and i will say like i don't know who this model person is um but like he definitely exudes the like yeah i'm like mask but like i don't know like there's something about me you know but this is also the movie where we get long duck dong um, who, who is a Chinese foreign exchange student um, played by a Japanese-American actor. There is a gong that hits every time they say his name. Um, it's very like, what's with the weird kid? Right. Um, and he's literally only used to like be like a sexual pervert. John Hughes has said that like he wrote this character because his grandparents loved having uh, foreign exchange students because they thought that they had more respect for elders and they were better than American kids. And so he wanted to subvert that and show how once the foreign exchange kid is out of the eyesight of the American, you know, parents, they get fucking lit and wild and blah, 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 blah. Long Duck Dong is about your age, Sam. You two should have a lot to chat about. I love a visiting with a grandma and a grandpa and writing letters to parents and... Pushing lawn mowing machine so grandpa's hyena don't get disturbed. Hernia! Oh, oh yes, 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 indeedy. He, he does the dishes and helps with the laundry, you betcha. May I be excused? Where are you going? 
I have a dance to go to at school. I have a wonderful idea. Would you like to go to the dance with Sam? He says that Geri Watabe understood that, was on board. But I'm like, sis, what the fuck is he supposed to say? I mean, yeah, exactly. He can say that all he wants, but Geri Watanabe has also said that he, John Hughes, didn't know for the first week that he wasn't foreign at all <sighs> because he was just doing the accent. Like a week later, he had to be like, I'm from Utah. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, and it's not even like, it's a South Korean accent. So, like, right. Um, I, I think uh, 16 Candles, though, is mostly successful because of Molly Ringwald's performance. Yeah. I think she is such a good avatar for, um, you know, forgotten youth, you know, yeah. like kind of uh, she's wandering and she's and she's not she's like a little salty about it. Of course, who wouldn't be? Yeah. But she it has a good head on her shoulders. And, and it, it, the movie, like the solar system around her of fucking freaks you know, and she's like the only normal human being. And she's like, what the fuck is going on? And that's kind of why it like you immediately connect with her. I'll be honest. I hadn't seen this movie since I was very young and I didn't really like it this time. But I will say the thing I appreciated the most was how sort of undefined she was as a high schooler. Mm -hmm. um, you will see in his later films that like everybody gets much more categorized and everybody right. like stays specifically within their cliques. And she didn't seem to have that. She seemed much more free floating and, and just sort of, you know, and, and every and every person, by the way, uh, the reverse of that, Anthony Michael Hall's character, who's just a complete outcast. And nobody, we have not we've also not even touched on and, and we're not going to make this whole podcast about 16 Candles, but he date rapes a girl at the end of the movie. It's implied something happened, but it's OK because she enjoyed it. I was wondering about the ending of the movie because I was like this. He does take her, they don't show like them doing like she's very fucked up this yeah. girl and she and they by the, the movie, way like played by Havlin Morris who is great in that role I was like oh no this is gonna go to a very dark place it doesn't like lean into like the darkness as much as I thought it was going to he does take her home and she kind of like some I don't it's a very it's a morally it's a ethically sticky area. gross she like, She's also mentioned in that article Molly Ringwald wrote because she like emailed, she like met her for coffee and, and she was kind of like, well, I had, I never thought of it that way. And like, I don't think it's meant to be. And then emailed her later and she's like, you know, actually it's a little uncomfortable that like Jake Ryan trades his girlfriend yes. who yes. is blackout drunk for a pair of panties and he's yeah. the hero. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh Ruth's doof. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it's a success. It's a hit. Yeah. And and I will say, like, you know, the, we're just being critical because we have to be. The movie definitely, you know, it's it set the groundwork for this, like, teen fantasia. The the girl gets the guy in the end. Right. There's the scene with the, the cake. And, um, and the thing it does, too, that other films weren't doing at the time is you basically had two polar ends of the teenage film you had after school specials which no teen would be caught watching because they were all about moral and and they weren't plugged into what teens liked and then you had things like porkies which were like teen sex comedies where the sex. women are even even more paper thin the yeah. men are all idiots and so he's able to find the middle ground because 
<clears throat> while his films might not be exactly moral, they do treat these teenagers like people and it centers right. their world, even though, once again, some of the drama isn't exactly life altering. Like, right. I mean, 16 Candles is a movie about a girl whose parents forget her birthday. Pretty in Pink's about a girl who wants to go to prom. You know, that the, these are not going to change the universe but they treat these subjects in a serious way that kids at the time are thinking about them in such well, a manner also i mean and also those two specific examples when you're that age it is the end of the world it is the end like of the world. it yeah. it matters and so to have someone um treated as such was such like an aha moment like holy fuck this guy isn't talking about like, oh, no, I did drugs, and then I died or like <laughs> or whatever bullshit, you know, adults thought was happening. It was literally as simple as remember me. Think about me. You know, don't leave me alone like right. that. It's, it's that simple. And I'm just real true to those those feelings. I mean, you know, I, what it's like to feel completely grown up, completely uh capable of being responsible for yourself and having someone saying in the midst of all of your problems what time are you going to be home for dinner i mean i remember that stuff you know? or not being given credit for uh, uh the scope of a problem you know, your father say three years from now you'll laugh about it well you're not laughing right now after 16 candles blows up they make um, the breakfast breakfast club, which might be like the zenith of, and this yeah. is crazy to say, but like I think it's his definitive movie. Yeah, um, and he casts. He he says we're having Molly again, and we're having Anthony again. They will be in it. Yeah, um, I th and he and he also casts Ali Sheedy, who he had met oh, right, during right. the casting process for Pretty in Pink, and was like, she's not right for any of this, but I'll keep her in mind. Yeah, I need her. She's she, she's coming later, um, and so he makes a Breakfast Club, um, and it's you know it pops off. People love it. It you know blows up. It's it's like you said the labels. Everyone has a specific thing. Yeah. Um, the jock, but the then, geek, the criminal, yeah, the basket case, the princess. Um, we got them all. We won this uh -huh. round of trivia. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we all have a thing except. We're the same. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was like, what, what was after that? He said after that was Pretty in the Pink, right? Yeah. Uh, but he decided uh, Pretty in Pink that he wasn't going to direct, direct. because he was going to put all of his effort into Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, right. which is and another script I... he wrote in like 24 hours. Right. And I think that's kind of becomes like the thing he will do like two movies a year and then like a third he'll like give off to someone else right um so uh can, can we talk a little bit about the the culture around these movies behind the scenes so essentially oh, yeah essentially um he puts himself in the position where he's once again a mid-30s man who puts himself in this position where he becomes actively friends with anthony michael hall and some of these things i read i was like suspicious behavior yeah and that Molly would not Ringwald. fly yeah that nowadays fly. yeah nowadays it'd be like don't you dare right. but he was like taking them out to to clubs and or or like going over and playing board games with them and so and you have to you absolutely have to remember molly ringwald and anthony michael hall were the age of their characters they were yeah. 16 yeah. um 
and unfortunately the breakfast club becomes sort of the 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 nearing of the end of their relationship because Mm -hmm. uh the breakfast club around that time anthony michael hall and molly ringwald start dating and right and molly ringwald says that that was maybe the first bit where he was like i don't he said what the fuck are you doing yeah and as she said it was the first time they'd gone off script with Mm. him and and then um and then i i don't know how much further we're gonna go into the breakfast club because i feel like it's a movie that everybody's seen and 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 there's all the the only thing i will say about the breakfast club in terms of filmmaking is he shot so much for it right the studio was very angry at him he was going over budget you know he was shooting he would load the camera up and it just shoot and he would never call cut the big confrontation scene at the end was two hundred thousand feet of film I shot uh, five actors, four sizes, two masters, 20-minute scenes, you know, two full magazines on each size on each character. And I wouldn't interrupt them. If they did, if they screwed up, we'd just keep going. They'd get their composure back and go. I, ne- I just never cut, you know. And, I mean, if we started every shot with a full magazine because I'd end the scene and then I'd just sit there. And you can tell, though, because, like, some of the shots, the detail shots of them just, like, you know, the, the iconic, I mean, a lot of shots in that movie are iconic, but, like, Emilio Estevez just, like, looking at his little, like, strings from his shirt, yeah. like, making sandwich, like, it, these little details. That movie is made on details. Absolutely. And so you, you understand these characters through, you know, their little, like, idiosyncrasy right. moments. And, and just so you know, we're not being you know incredibly negative that movie is an actor's dream and what's Mm -hmm. interesting is we talked about how he was very controlling about his script the reason he even went in directing and i've heard from a lot of the in my research process from a lot of the people that worked with him he didn't he wasn't really interested in directing more so than he just wanted to protect his words he was right but he wasn't precious about it exactly and And i could not believe gavin i I could not believe it either when I heard him say, he was like, I think the actors are the most important persons on the set. I was like, oh my God, I'd never have heard a filmmaker say that in my life. And to me, the actor is the most important thing on the set. Um, you know, it starts, it's, it really starts with the actor. I mean, you, you protect the script, you know, through, through, through pre-production, through production. The script and the actors are like, you know, sacred. Um, and I, I give them a lot of freedom. I like their ideas. I like their input. You know, they're, they're all, if you don't ask them for something, you're not going to get anything. And you know, it's very easy for me to say no. What I like to do in rehearsals is let them have, you know, say anything they want, um, challenge me, confront me, and then once we're shooting, we know pretty much what we want to do. And if something comes up, if, if, if somebody has an idea and they want to try it, it's really easy for me to say, I don't think that's going to work. I think Detention slash Breakfast Club went through 17 rewrites. And then in the end, like in the room, it didn't matter anyway because they were figuring stuff out as they were going on. But I feel like the Breakfast Club, even though it's the beginning, is also sort of the end of his working relationship because you're really starting to see, unfortunately, who John Hughes is as a as a friend. Because Anthony Michael Hall, you know, both Anthony Michael Hall and molly ringwald go on to do his next two films uh pretty in pink uh, and weird science and weird science um anthony michael hall plays the lead in that he's a nerd uh you know and then pretty in pink 
Molly Ringwald goes off and she's she's a girl and she she's caught in this love triangle. Right. We're going to talk about them more in a moment, but just the behind the scenes stuff. So then the next project. Oh, well, when Pretty in Pink is in casting, John Hughes is like, great, you just did Weird Science. Uh, I want you to play Ducky and Pretty in Pink. And Anthony Michael Hall responds with, well, this is a redundancy issue. I don't want to keep playing this character. And John Hughes never speaks to him again. And then the same thing ends up sort of happening for Pretty in Pink. He begins casting Ferris Bueller. Molly Ringwald gets on the cover of Time magazine. And she's like, I kind of want to spread out and do other things. And I don't want to keep playing this role because she was going to play Sloan in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. She turns that role down. And he basically never speaks to her again either. And these were friends. These were people that as a mid 30s you know man was he was hanging out with these 16 year olds yeah he was inviting them over to his house i can't imagine writing off children yeah yeah he said you think you're the only fucking one out there (laughs) i made you and i can destroy you so weird science we can talk about because he he did direct that that was the same year as breakfast club this is 1985 um and weird science is kind of like now we're focusing solely on these two virginal nerds who really just want to get off. And instead they like use the burgeoning world of the internet to create a woman. Um, for all you internet Tumblr um, gays, this is where we get the gif of like the guy wearing the woman's underwear and the crop top. Um, and it's very hot, um, <laughs> but it's a joke. Um uh, this movie is weird. I don't understand what the message is. I, I At the end, it's kind of like the woman being like, you need to stand up to bullies. And then that's it. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's 100% a wish fulfillment film. I mean, essentially what they do, they're, they're attempting to create a woman. They actually create a genie, essentially. Yeah. And she's she's this sort of otherworldly. She's Kelly LeBrock. And she's actually, I um, didn't love the movie, but she's amazing in it. She's gorgeous, and, and she but like, I think she's actually very good too. And like, she has to do some really uh, embarrassing stuff. I mean, and it sounds like the maybe the set atmosphere was. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was fine, but also maybe not the world's greatest. Um, Ian Mitchell Smith, who plays the other uh, boy in it, um, he he plays Wyatt. Uh, he was 14 at the time, and and there's a scene where they kiss, and he like shoved his tongue down her throat, and God. she had to explain to him that like if he did that again, she would murder him. She didn't care how well, what what it did to the film. Good for uh, her. Yeah, and um and so like I don't know. I I think she puts in a really good performance for a kind of a a very it's masculine, very yeah, a very male gazy role. Right. It's like, okay, well, if nostalgia is a prison, so is masculinity. Here's yeah. the movie. Um, it's like literally like them and like Robert Downey Jr. looking at a computer, like, make her boobs bigger. Like, yeah. okay. Um, they forgot to hook up the Barbie. They had, yeah. Um, okay. And then Pretty in Pink comes out in 86. Um, that, Directed by Howard Deutsch. Howard Deutsch, who was his like little. He gave him the movies. Yeah. He was, he trusted him. Um, Pretty in Pink, which. <laughs> I had never seen. Um, I had never seen. Um, there are some genuinely fun moments, but the <laughs> role of Ducky is the fucking craziest thing I have ever seen in a film before. He's terrible. It's 
it's and it's what's funny is i realized wait is this no this isn't the movie with the painter that's some kind of wonderful that's some kind of wonderful which is a remake of this essentially yeah it it is because it's like all i could think of was not another teen movie (laughs) and having a better appreciation for that movie (laughs) it gets funnier and funnier the more you know it it really does you know you're not wrong you know what's funny too about uh some kind of wonderful is that um you know, pretty pretty in pink. Just to give a description, pretty in pink is a is a movie about uh, a girl named Andy who is uh, from the wrong side of the track. She's from the poor side, and she falls in love with Blaine, who's a rich guy. This is guy. the class warfare, yeah. John Hughes movie. And she has uh, this uh, friend who is also from the poor side named Ducky, John Cryer. Um, and I want to put friend loosely because everything, Very loosely. everything is always like her best friend, her best friend. There is nothing in the movie that says he's her best friend. He is the worst person in her life. He is constantly just called. There's a scene where he like toxically calls her over and over and over again. Yes. I just, I can't believe you'd be this stupid. You're shitting on me. I'm not going to let anybody shit well, on me. He's just, he's going to use your ass and throw you away. God, I would have died for you. So what am I supposed to do? He asked me out and I like him. If I hate him because he's got money, just listen to me. If I hate him because he's got money, that's the exact same thing as them hating us because we don't. Do you understand? You can't do this and and respect yourself. You, 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 you can't. Well, I'll make that decision, all right? Sure, you can, you can do what you want. You know, you're talking like that just because I'm going out with Blaine. Blaine? His name is Blaine? Oh, that's a major appliance. That's not a name. And then in the next scene, she's like... You know I love you, right? And I was like, I was like, this is incel starting yeah. behavior. This is yeah. why incels exist because they think that that is reality. I was like, there is no woman, there is no girl any age who was like, you know I love you, right? When you call me every two minutes. <laughs> and uh, you know the famous thing about this movie is in the original ending, she ends up with Ducky, who she has no chemistry with, but whatever. She ends up with Ducky. Uh, test audiences hated it they reshot the movie they brought andrew mccarthy back who was apparently on broadway at the time had lost 20 pounds and shaved his head so you can like you can see the lace when he's (sighs) confronting um, uh, andy at the end of the movie and they reshot it so she ends up with blaine which by the way as awful as that's gonna make me sound it like except for what he says to her Mm because he does he's like i always believed in you you just didn't believe in me like yeah. fuck that no i think the i think if i were to make the ending of that movie she wouldn't end up with anybody she'd go to prom and she'd tell them both to fuck off i think it makes sense that she ends up with him she clearly has more chemistry with him even though the the tension of that movie is very loosey-goosey it's like i don't know would you like date a rich person <laughs> it's like what the fuck are you talking about right. like and also they like want us to believe that they're like really fucking poor and yet Ducky is like they show Ducky literally in a room with like just a mattress and it's like a derelict. And I was like, what are you talking about? This man like is going to school and hanging out. They go to bars. They're they are hanging out at clubs where musicians are playing. I right. was like, bitch, that was a twenty five dollar cover. Don't tell me otherwise. And I'm going to get to some kind of wonderful in a minute because I know I started by saying that. But speaking of the club. Ducky, it's like an underage club nonetheless. Right. But Ducky is too young to get into the underage club. And yet there's a scene later in the movie where he kisses Annie Potts. And Annie Potts is like, I'm old enough to be his mother, but I felt something. So wild. So wild. And I think honestly, in all of this, all of these movies, 
the biggest stand-in for John Hughes, and I'm not claiming that he wanted to sleep with these kids. Please don't take me out of context. But I think the biggest stand-in for John Hughes in any of these movies is Annie Potts' character in Pretty in Pink. Because she is this older woman who's obsessed with music. She's hanging yes. out with these young kids. She's really entwined with their life. She's the one who's like egging Molly Ringwald on about that she needs to go to prom. And I was like, what a weird fucking thing to tell a kid. And then there's a line in the movie where she's hugging Molly Ringwald. And she's like, oh, why can't we start old and get younger? I envy you. I really envy you. Iona, you're going to OD in nostalgia. Yeah. And I was like, this is John Hughes. I was yeah. like, this is him. Yeah. You're, you're, you're not that slick, honey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, oh, overall, watching the movie was fine enough. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think like. I think the stuff with her and Harry Dean Stanton's really great. And and holds yeah. up and ends maybe my favorite thing in the movie. And that's the reason why her and the rich guy need to end up together. Because they both have these parents who are, you know, like flimsy and like maybe unattentive and, you know, are not the parents they should be. And so you feel that. After Pretty in Pink, he makes Ferris Bueller's Day off. I have a feeling we will talk about it later. Yeah. Um in eighty seven he does some kind of wonderful, which he also passes off to. Um... So, oh, so this is what I was getting at. So the original ending of Pretty in Pink gets changed. Uh, he gets super mad at Howard Deutsch and he's like, we're not going to talk again like he does with everybody else. But then the movie does incredibly well. They've already hired Martha Coolidge, who did Valley Girl, to direct some kind of wonderful. He f- he fucking gets rid of Martha Coolidge and replaces her with Howard Deutsch because he's such a box office draw now. And this is the movie where literally the he gets the like ending of right. the character ending up with the like nerdy outcast friend, yeah. which is fucking bonkers because it's like she's so fucking hot. Like Mary she Stuart is. Masterson and her like little haircut and her like fake really bad drum playing. Yes. Um, and and that's a great cast. Eric Stoltz plays essentially the Molly Ringwald character. Mary Stuart Masterson plays the Ducky character. Leah Thompson plays the Blaine character. Yeah, I love Leah Thompson. She Leah goes Thompson. on. She goes yeah, on to marry cool. Howard Deutsch, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but the kiss between Eric Stoltz and Mary Stuart Masterson, I had never seen some kind of wonderful before. Me either. And it is kind of just a pale in comparison to, to uh, Pretty in Pink. But that fucking kiss, I was like. This is hot. Yeah. Guys. Eric Stoltz does things for me in this movie. <laughs> After this, he, uh, uh, John Hughes is trying to move away from the teen yeah. movies. This comes to an end of his teen era. Yeah. He's like, um, bye teens. See you never. Yeah. Fuck teens. Um, and so in 87, while Deutsch is making some kind of wonderful, he is making planes, trains, and automobiles um, with Steve Martin and John Candy. John Candy, who would essentially become his second era muse, yes. um, and 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 was like the stand-in for the like adult version of you know the high school artist who wanted to do art, and now it's kind of like. Um, I am the everyman who, uh, life is hard sometimes and we're out of place and whatever. Yeah. Um, I never seen planes, trains, automobiles, um, saw it finally. I, I will say too, I, I went even further, um, 
in the research process of this. Um, he also starts a working relationship with Chris Columbus, who will go on to direct the home, yes. the first two Home Alone movies. And because of that, he for the first time ever, he produces a movie that he doesn't write or direct. And that's Chris Columbus's Only the Lonely. If you've not seen Only the Lonely, I fucking love that movie. It's a movie where John Candy is the romantic lead and Ali Sheedy is the love interest. And apparently he demanded they cast Ali Sheedy because he was like, it's the handoff between my adult work and my teenage work. But Only the Lonely comes out later in 91, though. Yeah. Oh yeah. So so like he's still making like before that he's got Oh yeah, plan- no. I I I'm not saying chronologically. I just wanted to mention only the lonely. You don't have to see it for John Hughes's over because he didn't Correct. have much of a hand in it, but I, I, I think if- I, I saw I saw her. I saw her. Oh nice. It was fine. Oh, how dare you. Yeah. Yeah, I said it there. Hmm. Um <laughs> I'm I'm replacing you with a plastic skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> honestly chic um after that famously he makes she's having a baby we talked about it in the kevin Mickus episode i do not like this movie it's not great um he he loves this movie this is him kevin Bacon is him whatever um it's pretty fucking you know misogyny the movie um fragile white male the movie <laughs> um his second john candy um collaboration is the great outdoors in 89 uh, Uncle Buck and Christmas Vacation gets made. Uh, Uncle Buck, I saw for the first time. Um, again, the third um, combo with John Candy. Um, but also, wait, isn't John Candy also in Home Alone. Vacation? Oh, yes. He's in, he's in Vacation. Sorry. But he's also in wow. Home Alone, by the way. So, <sighs> Yeah, he's in a lot of them. Yeah. Um, Uncle Buck, which is basically like, I'm, like, again, it's Mr. Mom, but like, instead of the him being the, he's the uncle. Right. And, th- and this is the thing. This is the other thing that John Hughes gets accused of all the time. He he rewrites his own stuff. Uh, Uncle right. Buck is Mr. Mom. Pretty in Pink is some kind of wonderful. Uh, Home Alone is Dennis the Menace. Baby's Day yes. Out. Like, yes. Y- you know. The best part of Uncle Buck is Macaulay Culkin and tiny little Gabby Hoffman. Yes. Gabby. And I, I was like watching the movie and I was like, I know this child they are i famously hate ch- child actors macaulay and gabby are killer in this movie um okay after i mean so and and in this time period we're doing like adult things but also we're now getting into like he's making these broad family comedies so in 1990 though fucking like lid just rips off the house and home alone comes out we talked about this for our Catherine o'hare episode at this time also John Hughes has moved to LA and he fucking hates it. He fucking hates living in LA. He like keeps his house in Chicago. Um, and he, and, and now that I think about this, like, I wonder if he like, he says he hates LA just because like, there's nothing he, like, that's not real life. Right. There's not real. Nothing real is out there. It's all fake. Um, but now that I think about it, I wonder if it was just like too fucking like liberal for him, you know? Like, yeah. And so he, I mean, and, and, Truly, this is like getting towards the end of his um, at least directing career, but like time in Hollywood because right. he does not like schmoozing. He does not like um, I, I think after Home Alone, um, he was getting a lot of attention, more hands from bigger players wanting to assert control over his films. And he just was not going to play that game. Yeah, he was going to write. He was going to, you know, uh, do his thing. And uh, it kind of ran away from him. Um, and I, I think once that's out of the, like, especially back then, I think once it's out of the, the 
you know, Pandora's box. You can't really put it back in. Um, and I think the other tiny bit of that, too, is he's receiving diminishing returns in terms yes. of box office and criticism of his films. Dutch, a movie that he wrote, was accused of being just a plane, trains and automobiles uh, ripoff. And his final film that he directs, Curly Sue, is savaged by reviewers. With yeah. good reason. Oh, I'm not um, disagreeing, but... <laughs> But so after Curly Sue, he stops directing. He decides, peace, motherfuckers, I'm going home, um, moves back to the suburbs of Chicago. He literally buys this land and reforests it. He is still writing and his movies are still being produced. He just has let it go, Elsa. He's like, I'm not I'm not fucking around. Um, but so, like I said earlier, he writes the Beethoven movies. Um, he writes the Home Alone sequels, um, Dennis the Menace, Baby's Day Out, Miracle of 34th Street. Um, he also writes 101 Dalmatians for Disney um, and Flubber for Disney, which I did not know and watched the shit out of when I was a kid. I started making teen films because if I was going to direct, I wanted, you know, I wanted to make sure that I didn't have an actor say to me, you know, you have no idea what you're doing. Because I didn't. And I figured, well, maybe if they're like 15, they won't ask that question. Or at least I can say to them, do you know what you're doing? And they wouldn't know either. So, you know, it's all accidental. This is not, I mean, career was not planned in any way. And so I went from Teen King to Kidmeister. <laughs> I don't know what's next. He starts writing um, under a nom de plume. Beethoven was his, was one of his first. He wrote Beethoven under the... the uh, the pseudonym Edmund Dantes, uh, the, mm-hmm. the main character from The Count of Monte Cristo, who right. is a, a man who like uh, gets shipwrecked on an island and assumed dead for years and then comes back under disguise to to get his revenge. Um, he writes Beethoven, uh, Made in Manhattan. So that kind of like comes to the end of his, I mean, his last credit is Gilbert Taylor. Um, and it's, you know, it sucks. I, he's taught of the two articles I posted on our Facebook. There's a Vanity Fair article um, that's pretty iconic. It was written the year after he died, um, and the writer um, David Comp he talked to um, John's sons and reveals, you know, just like three hundred notebooks of writing, um, his wishes, his wants. He he said and thought, you know, he'd be writing until he was 80 and making movies. And everyone you talk to, there's a bunch of interviews of people being like, I thought he was going to come back. I thought he was going to come back. Marley, Molly Ringwald had said, you know, we hadn't talked in so long. And I wrote him and he sent me a bunch of flowers. And so um, he's, they, she thought, you know, there, there was some reconciliation. Um, but literally he was visiting New York. Um, I think his son was um, living here at the time to visit the grandkids and um, he goes out for a walk and he's not a block away from the hotel and has a heart attack. And, um, you know, by the time he gets to the hospital, he's dead. He was 59. Um, too young. That's too young for anybody to die. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. And I think, you know, he has like, n- there is known um, screenplays that have gone unproduced that were either in development that fell apart um, that New York Times magazine article I wrote, they literally even say in the article, oh yeah, he's I'm working on this right now, Bartholomew versus Neff, um, which would have been a Sylvester Stallone and John Candy uh, vehicle um, that never gets made. 
um, a live action Peanuts film. People thought that his like great return was going to be this movie called Tickets, which was going to be like teens waiting for um, free tickets for a farewell concert. That just never happens. Um, so there's a there's a, a wealth of um, unproduced writing that you know just known and unknown. You know, yeah, that will maybe never see that kind of um, wraps up you know uh the life and work of um john hughes he was a very particular filmmaker who um loved his actors until he didn't yeah um who had a point of view that was very white very straight but also very defining of the generation because you have to think like this were these were the reagan years you know yeah. like it there is a reason why these were so successful. Like there's a reason why in Ferris Bueller's day off, like the only black people you see are like the ones that are dancing, you know, like it's, it is, it, 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 we were talking about this earlier. Like we, when we were watching the Olivia de Havilland movies, we were like saying like, Oh, it's of the time, you know? And so you can excuse some of the things. It's harder to do that now just because like the eighties was not that long ago. Right. Um, and it feels like the, the, these judgments that are being made aren't even from the 80s they're left over from an earlier era but they're being pumped through into an 80s world right but it also feels like he believed that america was like the heartland like he believed that like the real america stuff was coming from you know the people that he knew and i mean and i think there's still some of that like feeling at in studios where they're like there's a reason why people think like oh we got to get like those those middle um america people to you know come out to the watch our shows and movies they're the ones who really like you know are the heartbeat of uh culture which is fucking ridiculous um but all that being said i do think you know there is a lot of charm and a lot of um fun to be had um i just think it's super important to like be critical and yeah understand that you know this is not this is not the real america yeah with that i think we should move into our picks i think that's a perfect place so let's start with our one star reviews it pains me to say this not because of the content of the film or because of anything about it but it has the my favorite theme song of all the movies and my my pick is 1985's weird science weird science yeah boingo boingo amazing and that's the thing you know john hughes was all about his music and he knew the references you know uh john candy's son said that uh, uh like a month before uh a month before john hughes passed away he gave him an ipod just filled yes. with thousands of songs and he loaned it back to the family for them to play at his funeral which i think is so lovely and then i know and then apparently he would he would do it all the time he was yeah. giving out ipods like, like mixtapes mix- esse- yeah essentially but <clears throat> to come back to weird science we we talked about it before it's two nerds they're they're pubescent and they use their computer to frankenstein a, a girl together uh through they magic they literally watch frankenstein <laughs> they do colorized come on guys please anyways <laughs> um and uh she, you know she's played by kelly lebrock i once again i think her performance is really great in the movie however i think this movie is unrelentingly sexist i think this is maybe the most racist of his movies there's a scene where they like lisa the genie played by kelly lebrock 
brings them to a club and Anthony Michael Hall for the next 15 <sighs> minutes does like jive speak black impersonation. Let me tell you my story, man. Last year, I was insane for this crazy little eighth grade bitch. Okay? Crazy insane? Insane? Crazy? I was nuts for the woman, man. Now you gotta believe me. I'm saying, I'm telling the truth here. I'm speaking to you. I mean, I was nuts for the girl. And what did to me was these big titties she had. For a 13-year-old girl, man. <laughs> she wouldn't have had to worry about no titties for the rest of her life. Boy, you know, she was set and she was looking good, son. That's the truth, baby. He does it. He does that bit a little bit in The Breakfast Club. He does. He's he does. high. And a part of me is like, did Anthony Michael Hall do this? And people to make... are like, this is hilarious. Yeah, and they're like, put it in the film. Like, <laughs> I can imagine Don Hughes being like, this kid's a star. He can like do... <laughs> like, you, know, you know what makes me even more incensed about that is that um, Stanley Kubrick like loved Anthony Michael Hall because of the John Hughes movies and was like, he's the next Spencer Tracy and was going to cast him in Full Metal Jacket and he had to, like the talks fell fell through but i can't imagine i'm just imagining stanley kubrick watching weird science and being like "Ooh, yes. this is spencer tracy like, yeah <laughs> um, fucking psycho but anyways so lisa's there to teach them the lesson that like they should have more confidence in themselves i guess and that they should fuck the women they want to fuck because girls will like them even mm-hmm. though the girls kind of fall in love with them because they throw a big house party yeah. and there's a i i also forgot that there's like a really late third act car chase that the movie could totally live without but i almost feel like was a studio note just like something exciting needs to happen now right um i mean that movie is basically just a couple of scenes strung together um it's also maybe the the worst uh parents in i mean maybe not the worst parents because i feel like breakfast club has some really horrific stories of parents but like why uh, gary's parents are I have no idea what he was going for with them. Then there's Wyatt's grandparents who like right. have this really out of nowhere. They're also a third act edition. Like mm-hmm. they're just like, we need to make sure Wyatt is alone this weekend. Who's playing Wyatt's brother? Who's an asshole. So that is the late great Bill Paxton. And he is also really great in the movie. I will say uh, character of Chet Donnelly. Um, who she turns into a turd monster at the end a of the turd movie, monster, which is maybe my favorite thing in the entire film. Would you please turn me back to normal, please? I haven't done anything to you. No, but you've done plenty to your brother. Like what? Well, let me see. Uh, you've nagged him, huh? harassed him, me? suppressed him, <laughs> kept him in fear Come of you, extorted on. money from him. It's done out of love and there's there's fun stuff in it like any of the scenes where they're like making lisa and all the magic like all the like the dog on the wall barking and mm-hmm. i think some of that stuff is genuinely fun but it's i i don't i can't morally recommend this movie and, and maybe moral's not the right word but like I don't know. This movie should have Kelly LeBrock, much like you were talking about Gone with the Wind, should have Kelly LeBrock come out at the beginning (laughs) and be like, the 1980s were a different time. This (laughs) is like, yeah, and she needs to be like, you know, when Trump and all those fucking Republicans were talking about locker room talk, they're talking about this movie. Yes, exactly. Specifically. And it's like, 
but it's not fucking okay. Like this is this is the movie that like uh, and, talk to your fucking sons about like how to treat women. Right. And and I think that's the the most depressing thing about it is our two heroes Gary and Wyatt are supposed to be the stalwarts, but there's nothing based on their personalities that really separates them from, you know, the right. Robert Downey Jr. or the Robert Russler character, Ian and Max, who are their well, bullies. And, and you know that because at the end, they become friends to create a second genie woman. Like, right. they, they're the... And it's like, it's like, and yet, no matter what, if you're a nerd or not, you can come together with another white dude to talk about boners and boobs. Yeah. Like, it's, it's fucking wild. Um, this, I mean... This movie wasn't in- incredibly well received, but it was well received enough. And Roger Ebert even called it, um, the f- said the film was funnier and a little deeper than the predictable story it might have been. <laughs> so, like, I I don't know. Um, it's yeah, it's reception. It's I mean, it's like held as part of this John Hughes pantheon, and I think it's maybe considered nowadays one of the lesser ones. But I think it should be way pushed towards the back which is unfortunate because i also like as a kid i remember watching the tv show spinoff that ran for like five seasons with vanessa angel as as the lisa character good pick gavin um my one star review it is 1991's curly sue yeah this movie is so bad and i i don't i have a hard time with movies all the time that are like um homelessness porn you know yeah um which is what this movie basically is. It's like cute girl. And there was a moment when James Belushi, as he is credited, it's Jim Belushi. They are um, homeless and they explain in the movie that he had a one night stand with a woman and he ends up with her baby. It's, he's not even the real father. Yeah. He he's is, not the real father. Um, I guess she like leaves curly sue with him and he is such a good guy you just have to know that he's such a good guy um and and they let you know in the movie over and over again we don't steal we we lie when we have to and we we cheat when we have to but we're we're but we're good people um and they essentially are running scams like you know to get food and um they collide with Alison porter plays curly sue uh kelly lynch plays the the tough lawyer woman lady who loves her career and is ruthless. Um, except literally the minute she like runs into Curly Sue and uh, Jim Belushi, she's like, oh, well, I guess I'll let you guys stay. Like, talk about a fucking like flimsy yeah. character. I, I couldn't, I, I was like, how dare you try and sell this woman off as like this hardened, no hearted bitch. And then, throw a child at her and, and she's like immediately into it and she's such a caricature of that in her first scene and and i just realized that that case happens throughout the entire movie and in the it end does the gag of the end is that she has pictures of the husband with the pool boy dun 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 um and well there's your gay character finally there, finally <laughs> um and it's it's very just like she has a very awful kind of boyfriend i guess who is like, what are these urchins doing here at our snooty patooty place? And um, she's like, no, but, and it's, it's, the movie just sucks. Like, it, I, I think Curly Sue, the actress and character are very charming. 
but the politics of this movie are very weird. Yeah. And it's like he, of course, I, 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 I cannot wrap my head around this woman who is falling in love. She's either falling in love with Jim Belushi's homeless character, or she is be very concerned about the well-being of this child because like they try and pass it off as like well is curly sue being educated is she going to school oh she can't read oh no what's going on well i'm uh recuperating knock it off what are you doing with that little girl what do you mean has she ever been to school well briefly from time to time she's completely ignorant she's not ignorant she's illiterate that's not ignorant you're using her, aren't you? No, ma'am. Liar. You use her in your little cons. It's pathetic. It's criminal. I guess it's time to go. And and then the ending is like, they do this very, um, very gratuitous, painful plot twist of like, she thinks that he has left. Um, and... The, it's cruel. Even, it is cruel. It's, it's, it's fucking cruel. Like, the lawyer woman lady, she's like, your dad left you with this letter and Curly Sue's crying and she thinks that the dad has left and she opens the fucking letter and it says, go to the living room. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, not only did Jim's Belushi character think to do this cruelty on this child, but then like the woman love interest is like, yeah, let's do that. It's gonna be so fun. <laughs> like, right. what the fuck? Um, and like, yeah. I don't know how it fits into his political beliefs, but there's a whole thing that you could say about like Jim Belushi's character surviving because he's pulling himself up by his bootstraps. Oh yeah, and, he like, gets the job. Yeah. And, and that's what's also wild because literally she's like, you have to get a job and you have to like take care of this girl. And literally in one scene, he like, goes to a factory and gets a job and i was like this man didn't do that before just because right like, he likes being homeless like that's fucking right and wild. that's a very conservative that's yeah. a very like, like see he just tried and it happened like you yeah. fucking psycho um yeah. yeah curly sue not good also but, but i will say the um uh first movie that steve Carell's in Yes. For one, for one second, one uh, scene. Fun, weird fact about that movie. Uh, he really wanted Christina Ricci for Curly Sue after seeing her in Mermaids. And I cannot see it. I cannot see it. She's too good for it. Yeah, yeah. But good um, pick, Louis. Also, Alison Porter won um, a season of The Voice, apparently, very recently. Who plays Curly Sue? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I did read that. Yeah. Was there um, anything else you saw that you didn't particularly like? Um. So we didn't talk about this movie, but I did see... Um, career opportunities, which is a movie that he tried to like get his name off, detach himself from. He had written this. Um, the studio was like, "Bitch, we're making it." It was post Home Alone. Um, it stars uh, Frank Whaley and uh, Jennifer Connelly. It's very psycho. I've not, I've not seen it in years, but I have very fond memories of Jennifer Connelly in that movie. So I mean. I'm sure it's, it's I'm sure it's awfully sexist. <laughs> it, it it is. She literally is like I I'm I, rich and I don't know what to do. My right. daddy's crazy. I remember um, her riding one of those like kids. Oh yeah. That, oh, yeah. Yep. She later says that she was pissed off because all of the marketing was just her riding a kid's pony horse thing. Yep. Very sexually. It's what um, I remember the most from the movie. <laughs> I was um, a terrible human being. No, I mean, yeah, it it's worked. sex sells, kids. I've made my feelings clear about the Home Alone movies. You can hear them in the Catherine O'Hara episode. Same. Uh, 
uh and uh you couldn't pay me to watch beethoven <laughs> you, you really couldn't also weird fact about that movie that when i was going through all of this charles groden was in his late 50s in that movie and he's married to bonnie hunt who's 29 in the film and it's never mentioned wow well <laughs> i did not rewatch beethoven but i remember as a kid loving beethoven yeah i'm sure i'm sure i did too i just i can't yeah that basically his late career i i i mostly avoided uh like but. i loved beethoven i loved um dennis the menace i loved flubber um i you know these they were just like kid movies that i guess i don't know he had the formula but i, I imagine watching them now was it would be um a challenge but who knows anyways let's get out of here and let's get into our five-star reviews <laughs> review it, it uh, for all the shit that i talked in the rewind and like i guess i'm we're being a little negative but for all that like ferris bueller's day off fucking slaps um and i love that movie i love ferris bueller's day off so much um and um yeah, I, I knew before that this was going to be my five-star review, even though I think there are a lot of, like, good movies to pick from. I just knew. I, I think, one, I think Matthew Broderick is a star. Um, so charming. Um, I cannot imagine anyone else in the role, even though there were a lot of people who there was a were lot. considered. Yeah. Michael J. Fox was considered. Jim Carrey, John Cusack, Tom Cruise were all considered... Um, but God, I, I, one, Matthew Broderick is so hot in this movie. He's so charming. Like I, he, to me, in my little like teenager eyes were, was just like, oh my God, I want to be the, like everyone wanted to be Ferris. This yeah. was, and, and, and the thing that breaks Ferris Bueller's day off out of like every, the, the, the John hughes is that. This is about a kid who everyone loves unironically, and he is genuinely a nice guy. You know, he's he's kind of a rascal, but he doesn't hurt anyone. Right. He's not, like, motivated by sex. He literally is motivated by taking time out of the day to enjoy yourself and being there for your friends. And, um, yeah, I, I also love this movie because he's the only person I know that could fucking pull off... The breaking the fourth wall, like Phoebe Waller, like it's 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 so good. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good non-specific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. A lot of people will tell you that a good phony fever is a deadlock, but uh, you get a nervous mother, you could wind up in a doctor's office. That's worse than school. You fake a stomach cramp, and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing. You lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then so is high school. And what what I think is great about this movie too is the it is like the it's the ultimate distillation of that sort of like John Hughes has some really weird instincts when he's a director. Very heavy on sound effects, very heavy on like like almost cartoony gags. And I think you know, for every time it doesn't really work in 16 Candles, it really works here because, yeah, as you mentioned, he, these movies that he's making are fairy tales. And and that's yes. And like and I think Ferris Bueller's the most, you know, idyllic fairy tale of them all, uh, except that you usually get some sort of moral at the end of a fairy tale. 
and uh, Ferris Bueller doesn't really get any sort of comeuppance. In fact, I, I mean, he he teaches morals to his friends. Yes, and he like, and, and I think beyond that, like, and maybe that's like why this movie stands out because he's literally talking directly to us, the audience. He says, and and the reason why I think I really love this movie so much is because he is able to at the end look at us and say, "See, like I was able to do the thing, and it's okay in the end. It's fine, even though my sister hated me at the beginning of this and was out to get me." You know, we're family and we're able to take a breath and just really enjoy this beautiful, gorgeous day. Enjoy our company. Enjoy my friend's um, friendship, um, my girlfriend. Like, I, I, I do also think that fucking Cameron is the beating heart of this movie, though. Like, yeah, the soul of this movie is in and his Alan best friend. Alan Ruck Cam. is pitch perfect. Yeah. See, I, I this is going to this should give you like, I also think in a weird way, Alan Ruck is really hot in this movie. <laughs> and and maybe that says a lot about me maybe that's you, lo- Derek you know? said the same thing I was like oh Matthew Barry's so hot and he was like um what about Cameron and I was like what about Cameron babe like I mean let my Cameron go you know he so he Cameron or, or Alan Ruck he's 29 in this movie playing yeah. a teenager and he said he was very like worried about not being cool or hip but it like works so well and I think Cameron is the funniest part of this movie when he's at the stock exchange doing the like throwing his little hands and like when they're in Wrigley Field just doing swing bada bada swing it's so good they're and and kind of what you were saying about these other movies where it's just like scenes strung together this is what this movie is but it's works so well it works so well because that you can feel the relationships you can feel like the love you can feel the stakes i understand i'm always always the cameron when like someone is getting into tonterias and i'm like don't 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 and like and then it's like (laughs) and then like it's fine and then like oh this is better it's like Derek when we're like gonna go see a show and he's like no it's fine let's just go no one's sitting here let's go i'm like babe these are our seats we cannot go and then he finally he forces me to do the thing and I'm like, oh, this is better and we're fine. Like, and like the worst thing that could happen is someone says like, hey, go back to your seat and like, okay, fine. Right. Um, and I just truly the joy of, and also just like the one-liners, the zingers, the delivery of Matthew Broderick's lines. It's, I mean, this movie was made on a $5.8 million budget. It received $70 million in box office. It's, it's it and he again shot so much of this movie, like tons and tons of tape, edited it a million different ways. Because guess what? They're wearing the same thing the entire movie. And yeah. so or, originally the museum scene was after the parade scene, and realized um, the parade scene is just like the big, uh, most fun part of the movie. Um, so they had to move that around. But um, the best part of the movie, the the most emotionally satisfying part of the movie hands down and i think anyone will say this is in the end when cameron realizes he needs to stand up to his parents talk to them force them to come to grips with um the emotional torture that he's been feeling um and that car yeah she's she is gone with the wind she is (laughs) i I will say the one last thing i want to mention before we move on is uh jeffrey jones who it turns out is a terrible person as well yes (laughs) 
but uh jeffrey jones edward r rooney who's the principal who's after him is maybe the most grotesque most monstrous of the adults in any of his movies yes um and yeah and jeffrey jones is pitch perfect but too bad that he's also a monster in real life jennifer gray is also pitch perfect as when she says yes i have a loaded gun and a scorching case of herpes God, like there is no part in that movie that is wasted, no line that is thrown away. It's just so, so good. It's the perfect day off movie. Like it's it truly just brings me so much joy. What did you pick, Gavin? So I also picked one of his Edie McClurg movies, <laughs> as I like to call them. Because Edie McClurg? Edie McClurg, uh, who was the administrative assistant to... <gasps> I was just about to... Yes, 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 yes. yes, well, yes. One year later, she's in a little film called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in 1987, okay. um, in which she plays a car rental person. In what's maybe the, the, what's the what's the iconic line, Gavin? I was thinking about this. Are, we we haven't done this bit in a while, but she said what? <laughs> she said, "And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of fucking nowhere with fucking keys to a fucking car that isn't fucking there, and I really didn't care to fucking walk down a fucking highway and across a fucking runway to get back here to have you smile at my fucking face. I want a fucking car right fucking now. May I see your rental agreement? I threw it away. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? You're <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, the funny thing is, is uh, you know, the only direction she was given before that, I, that was her line. But the only direction she was given before that was like, be too busy on the phone to notice him. And she improv that whole scene. And he was like, he was like, how did you come up with that? And she's like, I just took a page from your book. It was all stuff I knew. Yeah. <laughs> she's mean, like, she, yeah, she's so iconic in that role and in um ferris Bueller's day off i love i love her so much all, all praise to edie mcclurk so uh, good uh but i i will say uh planes trains and automobile is is literally it's a road movie it's the john hughes reinvention of a road movie um steve martin plays neil page he's an account executive he's trying he's on a business trip from new york trying to get back to chicago for thanksgiving in two days he runs into Kevin Bacon. Uh, Kevin, well, Kevin Bacon, yeah. Which is r- really funny, by the way. So there's this whole interconnected John Hughes-averse, by the way. Um, and the scene when he's in the airport, when he eventually gets to the airport and they're announcing the delays, in the background, you can hear the airport fight from She's Having a Baby. Yeah. Wow. Um, you but, guys couldn't hear it, but my jaw just dropped. <laughs> um, but, but anyways... Uh, he runs into John Candy Del Griffith, who sort of becomes his bad luck charm. Um, he's this other man who's trying to get across country to get home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, suspicious. Suspicious. And it's sort of this series of unfortunate events, you know. And and the movie is literally, um, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles. They, they can't get on a plane. Well, they do get on a plane. It gets rerouted to Kansas. Uh, from Kansas, they they try and get back to um, Chicago. They take a train. They they get in a car. Every, everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Um, there's also those like really John Hughesy moments of like surrealism. I don't know. There's something so 
funny about the combination of I, I think this is really Steve Martin working at the height of his of his like this is this is the era in which Steve Martin is like moving away from the man with two brains and moving more towards eventually, you know, like you you see in Father of the Bride. And right, the more right, right. Totally. adult, more reserved. And at the same time, John Candy is his foil. But I think there's a way that you could look at John Candy and be like, he's a monster <laughs> because he keeps ruining everything for Steve Martin. Even though Steve Martin's really the monster. And and really like you know, I mean, he's super I'll uptight. tell you what, I'll tell you what, honey, I thought they were both monsters. I, <laughs> I, I'll, I will be very vulnerable and honest and say that I did not enjoy this movie oh, as wow. much. Um, and, and it was weird because as I was, and, and I want to hear the discourse because as I was watching this, I was like, okay, this is verging on bad behavior that I should be getting over. Like bad behavior person who I should like, not be judging and i was like wait what's going on here well, i mean and i definitely think there's an element of that and i and i do but i think the one thing that john hughes is good at doing is really creating that third dimension that makes them realistic and i think that there's enough scenes in the film in which steve martin's like you know what i am an asshole and i am treating you like an asshole and maybe i should be a little more open and there's enough scenes where john candy's like you know what i'm being an asshole I'm I'm the guy that like goes in and I smother my friends and I I realize like I'm too much. Right. And there's that I, great scene where he says, you know, they're at the hotel and he says, you want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. I did get the feeling of like, oh, he's walking this line. Yes. Um, but the whole time I just kept thinking like, just stop. Just stop. Like enough. <laughs> but but the other the other factor you have to to include in there is that they don't have time to stop. They don't like they're both in a constant state of panic. Even though, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but even though John Candy is maybe not necessarily in as much of a rush as Steve Martin is, uh, but I the, clocked that twist ending. <laughs> It's I, I love that ending and I love how sweet it is. And, you know, it's as stupid as it is when the power ballad of every time you go away kicks in. I'm like, you know what? I'm no, like, yeah, no, uh, I am a, a Lady Gaga, black pink sour candy. I was like, <laughs> no, 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 no. And I think this is also something that I wanted to bring up. I think a lot of John Hughes's movies end like it's almost like you bust your load and it's like, and it's over. Like, it's like, I don't mind that. Well, I mean, some of my favorite horror movies are the hammer horror films from the sixties that literally just end like their version of Phantom of the opera, the chandelier falls and <laughs> credits. And over. I was just like, you know what? Brilliant. You know, Dracula dies. We're done. No closure. You don't need it. You know? I just like, I, there were parts of me where I was like, and, uh, Molly Ringwald kisses Jake Ryan and then credits. Like that's it. I was like, yeah. it's you know the you um they leave detention credits. Like there's no resolution of like talking to the parents or whatever. And maybe like that's not the point. But like 
it's always just so quick. Like the endings for me always feel a little bit rushed and not quite like we just went on a fucking emotional roller coaster ride. Well, and it's and, like, zoom. it is really funny too, because he is such a, a character writer and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then at the very end, it's suddenly like, and the plot stopped. And I, and I, I get, I get where you're coming from that. Like, when you're when you spend so much time focused on character and suddenly you realize like oh shit there is a plot to this movie and it's done (laughs) and now i'm i feel but i i think that's you know he said very early on in his career uh he was watching these movies and a character would die and it would affect him immensely and he didn't want that for these films and or he you know he's watching a film and a person gets violently attacked and it really upsets him and he doesn't want that. And I think that's what it, he's like. I'm going to get out when the getting's good. And I get, I get hit a lot of time for having sentimental endings. And I do it deliberately. And, you know, I choose not to, you know, at, at some point I depart from reality and say, okay, look, this is what, this is what I would want to feel. You know, I mean, life doesn't always come out, you know movies can i think it's also his most adult film it's sort of the beginning of his adult films and i think it's much more um i guess by adult i mean mature um than something like she's having a baby i was not immune to the charms of planes trains and automobiles there are some really fun like ridiculous moments like in the car with the fire um is that the movie no i'm thinking of something else (laughs) there's a lot of thinking of dutch I didn't watch Dutch, so I, I also have a soft spot for Dutch, but I do understand that it is the lesser of the two. But those are both great Thanksgiving movies, by the way. There aren't that many Thanksgiving movies, so there's not. You're mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, was there anything else that you want to mention in our um, five star realm? Things that you liked that you want to mention real quick? <laughs> Am I a monster if I say no? <laughs> Bitch, you might be. <laughs> I, like, I really uh, tangentially i really like only the lonely which is very little john hughes influence is, is i there, had a hard time i had a, i had a i had a hard time i in will the say. spirit of john hughes is there anything like nostalgia wise that like brings up even though the movie might not hold up but like you have good memories of or fond of like, i i mean i was very fond of uncle buck growing up i really was um and i i did you know uh, breakfast club is fine it's fine like it's you know it's uh, i will i will i will go one further and say that breakfast club is very emotionally affecting i think that that i i rewatched and i was like yeah. the monologues that like Amelia estevez is is particularly very affecting he's this jock who commits this act of violence for no reason other than to impress his father and he is it's it's very powerful and i was like man I, and it's hard to like feel bad or sad for some fucking white jock dude but like you do feel the pain and yeah i think it's also impressive because you don't hear that often you don't hear the story of like um you know the, the i don't know you don't get to get in, in into into that world he knows his characters he really really does say what you will about him and you know and i know i'm coming off like a negative nancy um, I do like Mr. Mom too, as I mentioned, but once again, I, I still hate that ending. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's, I don't know. He was such a prolific writer and he could, he could write a character out of nothing. I just wish, I think there I are just like, wish there was more. Right. I, th- I do think these are very interesting relics of people like saying like, these are capsules of the eighties. I don't think that's correct. I think these are capsules of like white straight like you know 
America that it's very narrow because it completely ignores a lot of what was happening in the 80s. Like, there was a lot happening in the 80s culture-wise that was not these movies. Yeah. There, these musics, the, these movies do capture the music, capture some of the kind of outlandish um, fashions, um, you know, the teen angst of it all. I do get that. Um, I, I there is some like fun to be had in watching some kind of wonderful like there there is something there I don't think it's like the best movie but like it's really funny to see you know Mary Stuart Masterson this being like I'm a rock and roll girl uh, and I just like I'm in love with my like soft painter boy uh, like it 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 is there is entertainment value there um, but again like we've said it's just uh, you you cannot romanticize these movies because they are not real and they only uh, contributed to the like this fake thing of like how prom needs to be a certain way and you need to fuck girls by a certain time and you know you have to go to New York and spend ten billion dollars to have a good time. Um, so like knowing that it's like do I have fun watching Home Alone? I do, but like I can't pay attention too much to like getting underneath it you know yeah Uh, and that's the same thing for a lot of these movies but like they are relics of what people white people wanted us to believe the 80s were but it's not real it's a fantasy and so if you go into these movies thinking this is a fantasy um a white fantasy a straight fantasy you'll have some fun i I know i think i think that sums it up perfectly so before we get into our Fast forward, why don't we do our mixed reviews review? My one-star review was 1991's Curly Sue. And my one-star review was 1985's Weird Science. My five-star review was 1986's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And my five-star review was 1987's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I'm not winning that poll. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch, I might. Now that we're in our fast forward, it's once again hard to to do a fast forward for somebody who has passed away. Um, and I think you actually summarized him completely well. But I do want to say it is interesting to see what sort of happened after his movies. Um, Molly Ringwald famously was offered the role of Sidney Prescott in Scream. And she turned it down because she was 28 at the time. And she's like, I don't want to be that, that older person playing a teen forever. Which is funny because she was only four years older than the oldest other teen in the movie. Right, right. Um, but I think you, you then you see something like the American Pie movies come along, and those are more sort of the return to uh, the the Porky's, Porky's sort of formula. And then on the reverse side of that, you know the 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 quote unquote independent you know boom of the two thousands come in, and you you get the other you know the the more extreme like Welcome to the Dollhouse, the Todd Salons of the world. But then you know. And I don't know. I think I think he he left an interesting, like his impact is really his teen movies, and I think I think right. like those created the shockwaves that led to these other things that eventually come out. Well, yeah. I mean, you get like in the later '90s, early aughts. You know, the there was this little mini boom of teen movies like She's All That, um, Ten Things I Hate About You, um, and 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 so many more that were riding in that same lane. Um, that were speaking to this generation, and I and I don't want to undersell that. You know, in the mid '80s, 
these movies spoke to that generation. They were, right. and, and no one believed in him. Like no one thought breakfast club was going to be a hit. No right. one thought these movies were going to be they, they as big as had, they were. They thought it had just enough to make money. And that's, right. that's, you know, that's really what the film business is. My niece, who's 21 now, she's almost 22. She's a month away from 22. Oh my God. I'm ancient. Um, <sighs> she was born in, you know, 98. And I, don't know if she's seen any of these movies and i don't think they have any effect on her and i'm curious to see like where that legacy goes because i don't but i also don't think she's seen like any of the american pie films or really cares about them you know and well yeah i mean i think like going moving further into time and you know when people think of like more recent classic teen movies you think of like i don't know like mean girls yeah that type of stuff and she definitely knows mean girls and she can do you know that you know <laughs> right. we wear pink on wednesday and but i i think and and maybe there is something there moving the needle towards i don't know more uh, like less conservative takes but like i i I think john hughes he in this article in vanity fair he talked about you know wanting to Try making a musical. Try doing, you know, straight dramas. You know, he was going to be older and doing things that were way away from, um, you know, these teen things. And I, because all of the movies, all, all, all of the movies, they have these characters who are like outside looking in. Um, which just me saying that is like, fuck. Is Dear Evan Hansen like a fucking John Hughes movie like musical like? It, it might fucking be it's literally straight white it people <laughs> it's straight white people complaining about like you're not fit, fitting in um and don't come for me because i kind of like it lol um i but i do think his impact on culture is significant and the formula um works for a reason and it's probably because he was one of the first people to look at teenagers and treat them with respect treat them right. as full for fully formed humans that mattered you know treating their wants and needs as something that um you know is important it's got a universal appeal and like that's why i say like i know like i do know people queer people that have imprinted on it and i do know yes. people of color who have imprinted on it and because it's like, so it, easy it, to it's so right. easy to exactly. implant like you know to imprint an experience of a queer person disappointing mom and dad because they are queer and, and making that connection to, you know, literally any of the characters in breakfast club, you know, whether it's Anthony Michael Hall, not delivering the grades, um, you know, Amelia Estevez, not winning sports thing. Like we all can feel that disappointment through these characters. Um, and so hopefully like the legacy of that though is, <clears throat> I mean, I think teen movies now have kind of all migrated to Netflix, literally, yeah. like all have migrated to Netflix. But the beautiful thing about that is like there are now POCs and queers and it's now we're able to have those stories, but actually told through the lens of, you know, these different colors. It's not we can take off our fucking rose colored glasses looking at John Hughes and put on our fucking like rainbow colored glasses and like see ourselves in yeah. media. And, and, but, and so for as problematic as John Hughes is, it's like, I guess we have to fucking start somewhere. Well said. I mean, I have nothing else to add to that. 
I mean, uh, this is a white man that was wearing a fucking mullet, okay, and chain yeah. smoking for the most of his life, okay. So like, you, we we should have known. We should we have sh- known. We should have known. I mean, in the '80s, white people could get away with anything. Um. <laughs> this is the man that kept saying, "Oh, I love Chicago," and then just kept showing us the fucking suburbs. I was like, "Okay, well, sure, this is your Chicago, bud. I guess." I love Chicago. Chicago's the best. And it's like you only go into fucking go to the Cubs games or whatever. So I think that wraps up John Hughes perfectly. Uh, I think I think his career will continue to live on. It'll be curious to see, you know, 20 to 30 years down the line, what sort of impact he's having. But it is, you know, you've got I think you've said it beautifully by saying you got to start somewhere. I, I said that. Um, don't you forget about me is my second favorite. Do you want to know my first favorite music moment? I do. It's literally, it. it's it's literally the end of uh, Bueller's Day Off, um, just like boom, 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 like it's just yeah, it's so and then like and and literally to the point of like you cannot leave the credits, you have to listen to the entire song, and then Ferris Bueller comes on, you're still here, what are you doing? I was like, huh. Well, Louis, I'm still going to play us out with Don't You Forget About Me. <laughs> you piece of shit. <laughs> I'm never talking to you again. We're not working together ever again. I'm like John Hughes. <laughs> but anyways, we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to find us online, you can find us on Twitter at, at The Mixed Reviews. We're also on Facebook. Just type in The Mixed Reviews. You can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram. And you can subscribe to us on every major podcast app. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon. We are on all of them. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, go there, leave us a five-star review, and, and tell us what you think about the show. Make it nice. We'll read it on the show. Make it nice. We made Make it, it nice. nice. We'll be back in two weeks. Yes. And uh, with another stay- movie subject. Yeah, stay safe. Keep fighting the power. Rage on. Our girls won big at the Emmys yesterday. They um, did. Rest in power, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and register to vote. Absolutely. Bye, everyone. Bye bye. Don't you forget about me. Oh